0: I'm Crystal. If we haven't met yet, Uh, tonight we'll be reading Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37 Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst Then he said to his disciples The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man but you will not see it People will tell you There he is, or here he is Do not go running after them For the Son of Man in his day will be like the night lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed On that day, no one who is on the housetop with processions inside should go down to get them Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that day two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body there the vultures will gather this is the word of the lord
1: well good evening everyone it's great to be here with you happy valentine's day to you if you celebrate that kind of thing uh not all all of us do uh I'm going to pray for us, Um, we come to a passage on Valentine's Day which is not particularly romantic, a day of love and celebrating and we're talking about Jesus coming back and judgement and all these kind of things, how do these fit together? Um, We're dependent upon God so I'm going to pray for us and invite you to do pray with me, let's pray. Lord God we do thank you that you're a God uh, who is loving, uh, who is love. Uh, and you've revealed these things to us so that we would know how to live rightly, know how to live in a way that honours you, know how to live in a way that we've been created to, to live. Uh, and so as we spend time thinking about these things tonight, we ask that you would give us insight into them, even more than that, by your spirit that you would work in us so that we would respond to your words rightly and put them into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Star Amphitheatre was an open-air temple, hopefully you'll see it up here, uh, built in Sydney in 1923 for a religious group called the Order of the Star in the East. Situated at the north end of Balmoral Beach, the Gothic-style 2,000-seat building had panoramic views out over Sydney Harbour. And rumour has it was built to view the second coming of Jesus, who, of course was going to walk on the water through Sydney Heads up onto the beach at Balmoral. Where else would he come back? Now, obviously, it never happened. And as you possibly might expect in Sydney, the temple has been knocked down and replaced by a block of units. Now, fast forward almost 100 years and outside Town Hall, uh, this man, hopefully we'll see, This man uh, was representing another religious group, prophesying that a tsunami is going to hit Sydney, actually Greater Sydney, all the way from Wollongong to Newcastle on the 20th of September, 2018. And yet again, it was the same outcome. Life went on just as it always had. They're just two examples of the type of thing that has led many in our society to believe that the belief, let alone the public declaration that the end is coming, is a sure indicator that you're out of touch with reality. Hence Homer. And while we could just ignore the sceptics, I think there's value in examining their claims. There's a scathing article on the website, skeptics.com.au, which summarises, the one thing all these predictions, too many to number, have in common is their 100% failure rate. While we may pity the lone prophet, we should also be aware that there are many people who, often in secret, will take the doomsday message to heart and adversely affect their lives and the lives of those around them in so doing. Are the sceptics right? Is there danger in taking Jesus' words to heart? Is Jesus' claim that he's coming back a doomsday message that will adversely affect your life and the lives of those around you? Now, sadly, it's not just ridicule from the outside. Jesus' second coming has also been the source of intensely hot debates between Christians. Are you pre-, post-, or amillennial? If you don't know what any of those things are, well, that's great. Uh, What's your view of the tribulation or the restoration of Israel? Now, I have no intentions whatsoever of delving into those debates tonight. Rather, we're going to try and answer just one question. Why did Jesus say he's coming back? Why did Jesus say he's coming back? And to answer that, we're going to look at a pair of pairs. The first pair, wrong hope in verses 20 and 21, versus right hope in verses 22 to 23, sorry, 22 to 25. And then the second pair, past complacency in verses 26 to 30, versus present readiness in verses 31 to 37. So why did Jesus say he's coming back? Well, firstly, to clarify what our hope is. There are many similarities between Jesus' society and our own, but there are also many significant differences. When the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 20 when the kingdom of God would come, it wasn't a test to find out if Jesus was a loony or a conspiracy theorist. Based upon Old Testament prophecies, it was the accepted hope. Of Israel that the kingdom of God was going to be re-established even greater than it had been in the past. Under King David and then his son Solomon, Israel had ruled over most of the known world but after Solomon died, Israel progressively deteriorated and finally came to a brutal end either in death or deportation to Babylon. Being back in the promised land after exile was a good start on the road to world supremacy but living under the rule of Rome couldn't be twisted by even the best politician or religious teacher to be considered God keeping his promises. As they say seeing is believing and if taxes were still headed off to Rome if the highest court in the land was actually in another country and spoken in another language then it's exceptionally hard to argue that God has established his kingdom. And so with this question of when, the Pharisees were attempting to back Jesus into a corner. His answer would reveal what he claimed that God was going to do or possibly even more likely to get him in trouble with Rome. But Jesus exposes the Pharisees' monumental misunderstanding. The question of when assumed that with the coming of God's kingdom, foreign powers would be expelled from the land of Israel, that there would be a new physical palace with a a physical throne for an Israelite king to sit upon. But Jesus says in verse 21 that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now those words, in your midst, have been translated a number of different ways, is within you, is inside you is among you they're all valid and the variations in translation fall into two main camps one possibility is that Jesus is claiming that the kingdom is not a physical bricks and mortar type kingdom it can't be measured by the number of soldiers or weapons that you have not by the the size of your population rather the kingdom is a spiritual reality now the other possibility is that Jesus is telling the Pharisees that the kingdom has already arrived? I think that he's actually saying both. The kingdom's spiritual nature, for want of a better term, means that if someone submits to God, then no matter where they live, they are in God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of Thailand or any other nation that has a capital city and mappable borders. It is not a physical destination that you can travel to even if COVID restrictions are not in place. And so while I do proudly own this Australian passport, I also proudly declare that this country does not receive my highest allegiance. Though it's not in any government database that I know of, I am a dual citizen. Now, fortunately, most of the time, these two citizenships sit together comfortably. But when there's a choice between obeying God's rules or Australian expectations, well, my citizenship of God's kingdom always outranks my nationality. The kingdom of God is wherever his subjects submit to the King. But I think probably even more importantly for the Pharisees at the time these words were spoken is Jesus is telling them that the kingdom has already arrived. The Pharisees were waiting for it to be established, which is a little bit like being at the train station and asking the guard when the train is coming. And he responds by saying, Ah, that big shiny thing just behind you, that is the train. So the Pharisees' question reveals their misunderstanding or probably more accurately, their blatant refusal to accept who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. And the fact that they are in conversation with the king and they don't realise it is a pretty good indicator that their understanding of the kingdom is a little bit astray. Mark said to us last week that in this section, there's going to be two questions that keep on coming up. Who can enter the kingdom? and what is expected of those who are in the kingdom. And the prophecies get both questions wrong. They assume that they would enter the kingdom and they assume that the Old Testament lists what they are expected to do. But their refusal to acknowledge Jesus, to submit to him, showed that they couldn't even see the kingdom when it was in front of their face. And with their mistaken hope exposed as false jesus turns to his disciples to tell them what they can hope for if a physical military or political kingdom is not our hope then what is now if we had been there at that moment my guess is that jesus change of focus in verse 22 may have provoked more than a little nervousness while he's getting stuck into others we cheer jesus on go and get him jesus but When he might ask us something or show up a misunderstanding of ours, well, his attention becomes a little bit uncomfortable. And as expected, his words to us are not simple. Jesus refers to the Son of Man, a title which is originally taken from the book of Ezekiel. It's a title that Jesus had repetitively used in his ministry up until this point. Is just a way that he talked about himself. But it's also found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it refers to a coming conqueror who would rule over all people in an eternal kingdom. So the words are there up on the screen, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. For the disciples, even without being given the text reference, they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to and yet at that moment, they wouldn't have recognised how good a description it was of Jesus. No doubt Jesus had already impressed them with his teaching and his miracles. But they all knew, since they were little kids going along to Sabbath school, what they'd learnt from their parents, from from their trips to the synagogue or to the temple. They knew that the Son of Man was going to be an all-conquering warrior, ruling with Yahweh himself forever. Maybe... Maybe now, if Jesus just kicked out the Romans, this would prove that he really is the Son of Man as he's been claiming. But Jesus uses the title in a different way to tell them what is to soon take place, to explain to them what their hope is. And it's not all good news. Though presently they were with the Son of Man, a time was coming when they will wish that they had him back again. And at that time, when he's not around, Jesus says that people will make false claims about the coming of the king. The disciples needed to know this so that they wouldn't be fooled. When Jesus actually comes, you will not be able to miss it. There's no need to build a temple with good views out over the harbour. You don't need to go searching for him. If only a few people say that they witnessed his coming, then we can know that it's not the real thing and when the son of man returns it'll be like lightning lighting up the sky his return will be seen and comprehended by all people did miss his first coming but there's no way that you'll miss his second but before he's seen and worshipped by all he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation verse 25 says which just seems so incompatible with what's just been said in Daniel. Surely an all-conquering one, one who's going to be worshipped from people of all nations, doesn't suffer. Not unlike the Pharisees, the disciples had probably concluded that the final victory of the Son of Man meant that he would always be victorious. But Jesus explains that that's not the case. He was just about to suffer and be rejected. And so their hope, the right hope, is for a final victory. But the way to that victory is not going to be smooth or easy. Now, because we know what comes next, it's impossible for us not to jump to the time after Jesus' rejection, suffering and death, which are all reversed by his resurrection. But it's important to recognise that Jesus is explaining what is going to happen to him, before it takes place his suffering wasn't an accident or somehow outside of his control he willingly suffered because that suffering was a part of God's plan and the point is made in a number of places that we are to anticipate exactly the same treatment although being on Jesus side means that we are on the side that wins in the end that doesn't mean that life now is a bed of roses We will be hated, excluded, insulted and rejected, Luke 6.22. We'll be persecuted, 1 Thessalonians 3. Some will even be killed for taking a stand with Jesus, Revelation 6. Now I think that as Australian Christians we know this promised hardship in our heads but more often than not in practice, because we know that we're going to win in the end, we expect the benefits of victory right now. It's part of the reason why the prosperity gospel has taken hold and gained so many followers. And so when things do go difficult, we wonder why God has allowed it. Why is this happening to me? We even question if God has forgotten us. Does he, does he maybe not love us? But Jesus' path wasn't easy And ours isn't guaranteed to be either. Yet I think how this theory works out in practice is difficult. When we lived in Thailand, we got to know uh, quite a few students from Myanmar. As you will have heard in the news, the military has taken over the country and is again persecuting many, especially minority groups. And many of those minority groups are predominantly Christian. When I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters in Myanmar, what is my hope? How can I encourage my friends who face the very real threat of being killed because they're on the wrong side of those in power? Because God is sovereign and loving and just, will he overthrow this wicked military junta? Can I promise them that everything is going to work out? And if so, when? Can I reassure my friends that God is going to protect them? Or does Jesus' promised return reveal that things in Myanmar might actually stay really bad for some time and yet they can continue to hope in spite of their present suffering? They're easy words to say but it's not an easy experience to go through. And while we may never experience a military coup here in Australia that leads to the shutting of churches and uh, imprisoning and killing of Christians, what does it mean to be a dual citizen now? Is our certain hope of final victory causing us to make some wrong assumptions about what we can expect right now? Or do we live recognising that the future final victory doesn't guarantee us an easy life now? The Pharisees got this really wrong and as a result they rejected the kingdom when it arrived which shows just how important it is for us to take time thinking this through getting it right and so now with our hope clarified we can consider our second pair so why did Jesus say he's coming back well firstly to show us what our true hope is and secondly to show us how to wait for the end Having clarified our hope, Jesus now recalls two very well-known judgments from the past to show what's expected of us while we wait for the day of judgment. The first judgment is the flood. Noah proclaimed to anyone who would listen that God was bringing an end to life. And there were two reactions. Those who believed it was true built a boat. Those who thought it was nonsense just got on with everyday life. Likewise, in the infamous case of Sodom and Gomorrah, the warning is proclaimed. Those who believe it run out of the city and keep on running. Those who thought it was nonsense just got on with normal life. It doesn't sound all that terrible a reaction, does it? Just getting on with normal life, eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage, verse 27. Buying and selling, planting and building, verse 28. It's actually probably a pretty good description of life in Wollongong in 2021. We might add in doing exercise, going to the cafe, taking kids to sport and getting our hair cut. And clearly the problem is not the activities in and of themselves. Noah and his family ate and drank while they awaited the flood and it was clearly an appropriate thing to do. Now, the problem's not doing normal life. The problem is the assumption that time just stretches on forever and the sun will always rise in the morning because it always has. And therefore, I can do life on my own terms, confident that I'm the master of my own destiny. It's a popular belief and it's condemned here as foolishness. Doing normal life while ignoring the judgment to come is reckless defiance of God. It is to be completely out of touch with reality. And so while the sceptics may argue that worrying about a last day will have an adverse effect on your life and the lives of those around you, Jesus says that a well-lived life is only possible if we live now in light of the future coming of Jesus. To not do so is to fail to learn from the past. Hindsight is a wonderful thing because it sees everything perfectly, but we don't get to make our choices after the bad things have happened. If you knew that the Titanic was going to sink, I don't think you would have ever got on board. If you knew how bad COVID 19 would be, Half-priced tickets on the ruby princess are not a bargain. There's something to be avoided like the plague. But prior to the flood, the ark seemed like the ludicrous harebrained scheme of a madman. And likewise, I think you can almost hear the conversations that were taking place in Sodom. Did you hear what Lot said? That God's going to destroy us all? What does he, what does he get off judging us for how we choose to live? What I do is my business and no one can tell me what I should or shouldn't do. But the lesson from history is, yes, there is. Our creator is also our judge. And the consequences of dismissing God's warnings all lead to destruction. Complacency, indifference, outright defiance all lead to destruction. And so if we just get on with life thinking that we are unanswered we don't answer to anyone then we have got a grossly inadequate view of life. Jesus in these verses lovingly reveals that we must be perpetually ready for his return which I'm very confident does not mean giving up your day job putting on a sandwich board and walking around in the city proclaiming the end is near Clearly the examples that Jesus quotes reveal the urgency and the override all else importance of his return. But what does it look like for us to be perpetually ready? Do we always have to preface our answer to somebody's question, yeah, I will be there on Wednesday, provided Jesus hasn't come back yet? Do we not bother going on and doing that further study or... Avoid buying a house because those are the kind of things that people focused on the temporary do. Is there any value in planting a tree when it might not get the chance to grow up? What about other creation care? Can I spend time and money on relaxing or sport or going for coffee with friends? Isn't that just a a waste of time and money in light of eternity? Well, John Wesley was once asked how he would spend his time if he knew that he would die at midnight the following day. His reply, Why, madam, just as I intend to spend it now, I would preach this evening at Gloucester and again at five tomorrow morning. After that, I would ride to Tewkesbury, preach in the afternoon and meet the societies in the evening. I would go to Reverend Martin's house, who expects to entertain me, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my heavenly father, Lie down to rest and wake up in glory. Now, I'm not so sure that I could answer with Wesley's confidence. Actually, I am quite sure that I couldn't answer with that level of confidence. But isn't that the clarity and confidence that Jesus wants us to have? To do all that we do in the sure knowledge that he is coming back. Jesus has already been telling anyone who would listen, what it looks like to live as members of the kingdom. Most things that our society tells us to focus on, Jesus says to avoid. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Tell the average Aussie that and see what he says. As we looked at last week, rebuke and forgive your fellow Christians. Our society warns us, that if we live like that, we'll end up in real trouble. Jesus says this is the only way to really live. Jesus does give us instructions regarding how we are to live as members of his kingdom, and that's what we're going to keep looking at as we look at this series. But don't assume that being ready for Jesus' returns means spending 24 hours a day preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 31 very famously says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The biggest issue is not what you do, but how you do it. As in the examples that Jesus gives, it's not wrong to eat and drink or get married, but the pull of this life, the life that we can see and touch, is very appealing to us. Jesus knows it. And verse 32 is his brutally short warning. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What mistake did she make? Well, initially she fed with her family from the coming destruction. But her actions showed that she enjoyed life in Sodom too much to let it go. Did she desperately want to see her daughters married there? Was her house that she'd put so much time into decorating really, really important to her? Was it an upcoming holiday that they'd booked to go to the seaside? Was it friends or was it something else? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but by hanging on to the life that she knew and loved, she forfeited the life that God offered her. Jesus here is lovingly telling us that we cannot have both. If you hold on to one, you automatically let go of the other. Our world says to strive to get everything you can. Jesus' upside-down kingdom demands the opposite approach to securing the future. Verse 33, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Jesus says the way to life is to give it up. That's the only way to actually get everything that we need. And Lot's wife is an example of not being able to see the value of what Jesus offers us. As our opening example showed, belief that the end is coming is challenged by the ever-continuing nature of life. As the Skeptic website puts it, 100% failure. Any group that has claimed that the end is near has had to eat its words. Now that I'm on the public record, am I the next to be named and shamed by the media? But you're all on the public record too. As we just ate and drank, we did it to remember him until he comes. We remember the past to shape our present in light of our glorious future. Jesus himself gave us this tangible way to remind ourselves that he's coming back, which I think is a great indicator that Jesus knows us all very well, knows that we're prone to forget, knows that we're prone to procrastination, prone to substitute the urgent for the important. And so he lovingly provides a means to frequently stop and remind ourselves that he is coming back soon so that we would live now, as he's told us to, in thanks for what he has done to bring us into his kingdom. To turn from the accepted ways of living that our society promotes, and live out his upside-down requirements instead. The story is told of a tourist who visited a villa on the shores of Lake Como in northern Italy. I don't know if it was this one, but it's very spectacular. Uh, George Clooney apparently recently sold his little villa on the on the uh, Como in Como. Um, the old gardener opened up the gates to this tourist, and, and the visitor stepped into this immaculate, beautiful garden. The visitor asked the owner if, sorry, asked the gardener if the owner was home. No, he's not here at the moment. When was the owner last here? Uh, about twelve years ago. Well, does he ever write? No. Where do you get your instructions from? Oh, he's got an agent in Milan who passes them on. Do you know when he's coming next? No. But you keep the grounds as though he's coming back tomorrow no not tomorrow the old man quickly replied today sir today if you're sitting here today and you're not sure if you're ready for the return of jesus then please do not leave the building until you've talked to somebody whether it's me or somebody else that you've come with to know how you can be ready jesus has done everything and you just have to accept his substitution in your place. Jesus' words are not a doomsday message to mess up your plans. It's a loving announcement so that you can plan wisely. If you do already know Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, then let's live like he's coming back today. Let's pray. Kind Jesus, we thank you so much that... You love us so much that you're willing to tell us things that society will misunderstand, that Christians will confuse as a a test for who's right and who's wrong. And yet we see the reason that you've given us this information. It's not just to store away in the memory banks. It's actually to change how we live our lives now. Lord, help us to understand what our hope is and help us to live in light of that reality. We pray this so that our lives would glorify you.
0: Amen.